<laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I got that out of my system. <laughs> oh. Just setting the tone. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by how long we should be isolating. Have you guys figured out these new guidelines yet? No, not really. Between five and ten days. Some, and do you have to test to, to get out of mm, apparently not. isolation jail? I think you jail? don't, but you probably should. It seems yeah. to me you should. Yeah, agreed. But, and does it, do the rules apply the same if you are... Uh, asymptomatic or symptomatic? Uh, I think that you have to be X number of days after symptomatic yeah. to or, test out. Or test positivity. Yeah. They sort of put those in the same category. Yeah. Point, the only point here is the fact that we aren't totally clear suggests to me they aren't very clear. Correct. Right. Yeah, which right. is problematic. Anyway. It's problematic. I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. I am joined once again by... My co-host, Dr. Christopher Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Matthew P. Fox. And I am also joined by Dr. Don Thea from the Department of Global Health as well. Welcome, Don. Matt, Chris. My, my, now, my notes actually say Dr. Dr. Don Thea. Did you get a, really? a second? I've only, no, I've only gotten one. Just one. So and, we a, have, and a master. I'm a master also. You are a master, a but master you, are, a you are not a Dr. Dr. No. So, uh, guys, we got a new review. Oh, oh really? really? We do. Oh. It says... Excellent science talking. That's the science that's the talking. Is that I like we, that. Is that yeah. what we do? And then it like, says, is that like close talking? It's kind of like close talking, maybe. From Seinfeld. Maple, yeah, Maple Tree right. 7, it says, I love listening to qualified people talk of qualified people. So oh, I don't know who this is about. This person, well, I love listening to qualified people talk about research, and this show is my jam. I also appreciate Dr. Gill's haiku. I was going to write my own. But then I felt chagrined and humbled. So well done, Chris. Thank nice, you. Nice All right. job. You're the haiku man. All right. So as a reminder, as always, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. And also head on over to iTunes or Stitcher. Give us another rating and we will read it live on the air. Is Stitcher like Etsy? Stitcher is exactly like Etsy, except it's for podcasts instead of artisanal Sewing stuff. Sewing stuff, yes. Arts and crafts. Yeah. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club, we're going to talk about a study on the impact of vaccine exemption policy change and adverse event reporting. And I just want to clarify up front, this does not have to do with COVID vaccines. This is this is prior to COVID. But, Remarkably. But probably has implications if you buy the results. So then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about a New York Times article entitled, Are Vaccine Polls Flawed? This was on Chris was interested in talking about. And then in our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud. So segment one, the article that we're going to talk about is entitled Association Between Vaccine Exemption Policy Change in California. An adverse event reporting. It was in the Pediatric Infectious Disease Journal by first author Dr. Ann House of the Immunization Safety Office at CDC. And this one was from May of 2020. So this one is a, is a, a bit, bit old. older, not sort of in keeping with our usual strategy of, of taking on things that have just come out, but we thought it was interesting and wanted to talk about it. Accordingly, I don't have any headlines for this one. So with that in mind, Chris, give us the rundown. Sure, thanks. And so first I want to give a shout out to the senior author, Saad Omer, who's a colleague of ours. Hello, Saad. Mm -hmm. 
I think this was published uh, not long after he moved over to Yale from Emory. I so that's so right. that's uh, about right. Anyway, it, it concerns the use of the, the VAERS system, which is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System set up by the CDC and FDA and jointly managed by those two agencies. Which is very much in the news in COVID times. Which is very much in the news in COVID times. And so I thought before I talk about the study, I should explain what VAERS is, which is, it is, is it a passive reporting system where individuals who have, have either experienced an adverse event from a vaccine or are the clinicians caring for a patient who had experienced an event from a vaccine or are the manufacturers of a product where they became aware of an event can report this into into this sort of central repository of information and it you know collects all sorts of information about the about the events and the timing and the age and the demographics etc but what it does not do crucially is to provide any control group and so it is it is a one-sided set of data which is i think you know, one can say it's it's generally a useful tool for generating hypotheses that can be tested in large epidemiologic studies, but by itself it doesn't provide any causal data because it does not have a control. And so with that, the paper that we're talking about here concerns a natural experiment about the effect of a change in vaccine exemption policy in the state of California. So previously, prior to 2015, individuals who didn't want to get vaccinated could cite a religious exemption or, you know, a personal belief exemption, I think is exactly how they, they, they called it. And in 2015, because of rising rates of pertussis and measles and other outbreaks, so I think it was triggered by the, the Disneyland measles outbreak, in fact, that exemption was rescinded by the legislature in California. And so that occurred on February 19th, 2015. And and so this analysis is sort of taking advantage of that sort of natural experiment to see did, you know, did this change in policy change the characteristics of VAERS reporting from uh, citizens in California? And so what they did was to follow this cohort of individuals from California who had reported events in VAERS, and they then categorized them by who was reporting. And the three groups that they looked at were parents reporting, clinicians reporting, or manufacturers of vaccines reporting. And they looked at the several years before the policy change and then the several years afterwards, and they did indeed notice some shifts in the, in the sort of the patterns of reporting and also the kinds of adverse events that were being reported. So this is an ecological study because we, we don't really know much about the individuals who are making these reports. All we know is like who and, and who was who doing it and when they were doing it. But the, the salient findings from this was they had uh, some 6,700 VAERS reports and roughly half of those were before the policy change and roughly after after the policy change and in the period before I'll just sort of cut to the to the results and get right to the the point because the methods are not particularly complicated here Right. There so was it's, a, it's essentially it's a, a pre-post. It's a pre-post, right? And so in the uh, in the pre-period, about thirteen percent, thirteen point five percent of the reports were coming from parents, and in the post-implementation of this new policy, twenty-two, almost twenty-three percent of the various reports were coming from parents, and there was a sort of reciprocal decline in the in the proportion that came from the manufacturers themselves of eleven percent in the pre-period, and seven percent in the post-period. Now. A lot of things are going on during this this time, and so there there are some other sort of funny things in these data. But let me focus on on the parent reporting aspect first. So, you know, obviously there was a there was a big increase, you know, from thirteen and a half percent to almost twenty three percent following this policy change, and the the inference that they're drawing is that this was essentially 
you know, a phenomenon of squeezing the toothpaste tube. That previously a lot of these exemptions had been based on on religious or personal belief exemptions, but since that track was now removed, they were moving to citing medical exemptions instead based on adverse events reporting. That that's the theory. Now the analysis doesn't doesn't quite draw that conclusion tightly, I would say. Mm -hmm. it, it can't, perhaps this methodology can't. But it is, so it is circumstantial. It is certainly plausible this would be the case. And there are some other elements to, to their analysis that, that suggest that probably this, this did play some role. And that is in the, the nature of the adverse events that were being reported. So in the pre-period, there's a long list of, of adverse events that were pulled in using ICD-9 codes, using preferred terms on MEDRA, which is this database for, for classifying adverse events according to, you know, primary uh, syndromes. So like, for example, you know, people could report sore throat or strep throat or pharyngitis or, you know, you know, pain in throat as being, you know, in any of many, many different ways. But then some coder's job is then to harmonize those and, and call it all pharyngitis. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's what the Medro system does. And so in the post period, what you saw is, is the emergence of a number of adverse events claims that were really absent or, or very rare in the pre-shift period. Mm -hmm. And these included, quote, abnormal behavior, screaming, autism, developmental delay, staring, aggression, speech disorder developmental, and decreased eye contact, and also sensory disturbance. And, and these are all, I think, you know, synonyms in some way for autism spectrum disorders. Agreed. And so it's sort of interesting that these are the, the events that were that, that ticked up mm. in the post-policy shift period. Now, it's interesting because not really very much changed in, the, in terms of the vaccines that were being used, but there, were, there was one change, uh, which I'll get to. And so it, it is entirely plausible and within the, you know, consistent with their theory that this, this was, you know, this is more about advocacy and belief than it is about true medical. Because uh, as we know, there has never been a link, in fact, proved between vaccine exposure and any of these outcomes. So it's sort of interesting that these these are the ones that, that crept in. It's also interesting that there was a significant delay between when the event were occurred in the pre and the post period. So in the pre-period, an event would occur and within about seven, eight, nine days, it would get reported into VAERS. And in the post period, that had gone up to like 20 or 30 days. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it also sort of hints to a change in the way that these uh, events are being reported. And then the last sort of bit of circumstantial evidence was based on, you know, where do these results come from? And I thought that was, you know, a part Part of the paper that was a little weak, frankly, they do say that there was an increase in reports that came from Contra Costa County, which is adjacent to San Francisco in the post period, but otherwise not much changed in terms of where these reports were coming from. But it, this this was really a very um, skinny part of the analysis, mm. I thought. So yeah. I, I thought they, they, they probably could have tried a little harder there. In any case, there was one other piece of this I thought that was really quite interesting, which has not really been remarked on. But in 2013-14, in the, the proportion of VAERS reports that came from manufacturers were 6%, roughly. Mm -hmm. And in 2014-2015, it went up to 23%. And in 2015-2016, it went up to 31%. Yep. And then in 2016, it fell back down to sort of five and a half percent, which was close to its baseline. And I, and I thought that was very interesting about why did the manufacturing rates go up so dramatically? It's, it's a much bigger change, in fact, than what we saw with the, with the parents reporting rates. And I sort of dug into this because I was curious, were there any vaccines that were licensed in that period? And in fact, there were. 
the two meningitis B vaccines went online in 2014 and 2015. True Memba from Pfizer and Bexero from Novartis, now GSK, came on in 2015. And so I think what we're seeing there is the mandatory reporting spike that usually follows the introduction of any new product on, which is the, the onus for that is on the manufacturer. So that probably explains what they were doing. So we can kind of like, you know, maybe take that out of the equation and focus instead more on the parent-patient reporting rates. But the, the, the relevance to this is that all of these three categories of parent, provider, and manufacturer should add up to 100%. So the fact that the manufacturing rates went up so much is going to also obscure the changes in the other two groups. Exactly. And they yep. didn't index this. They didn't do an indexed analysis of the absolute number or like as a rate per 100,000 individuals. Yep. So the fact that the manufacturing reporting changed so drastically in that period, probably because of the introduction of these two vaccines, is going to really skew the interpretation of the rest of these data. So I, I wonder if they may have inadvertently shot themselves in the foot on the analysis mm -hmm. by not looking at this in an, with an indexed measure. So those were, those were, that was what I thought about this. I thought it was interesting. I th think they probably didn't go far enough uh, on their analysis, but you know, it was consistent with the theory. That probably, you know, they are moving around because of a change in policy and looking for another way not to do vaccinations. What do you guys think? Possibly. Uh, so let me let me just uh, clarify one thing, which is that I didn't say, I should have said at the beginning, which was this was not a full manuscript. This was a concise communication, I would mm -hmm. say. Yeah. So they were, they were somewhat limited. I mean, they could have chosen to, I suppose, have written a full report, but they were, they were limited in what they could actually present, at least in the, in the main part of the of the manuscript. Don, what was your what was your reaction to this one? I, I was sort of a little disappointed at 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 where they ended up. I th I thought going into this that they were going to try to make a connection between the reports of these adverse events and and changes in the percentage of people who actually got exemptions themselves. And it, it's it's sort of they 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 alluded to it by presenting these data but didn't really complete it. And that would have been the interesting outcome, but the data setup wasn't really able to do something like that. I think I think the VIR system is an important thing to have, but I think it's it's woefully inadequate and, and tremendously biased because it's especially with respect to the data that's put in by non-healthcare workers, because it's not controlled in any way. Right. And, you know, so it's not adjudicated in any way, and anybody can put anything in, and I think that lumping it all together is sending the wrong message. But I, th I think it underscores a really important kind of natural experiment that happened in California with the change in this, in this policy. And the number of medical exemptions that were actually granted soon after the, the change in policy tripled. And there was another, another study tripled that Tripled from a, a low, from a low percentage, from a, from though. From a low percentage. It, from, I think but, it was 0.2% to 0.5% or something like that. But nonetheless went up. But, yeah. and, 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 and there was another study in pediatrics that came out in 2018 where they took a deeper dive into that. And, and what they found was that there were a lot of medical exemptions that were being given by physicians and healthcare workers who ordinarily don't provide those medical exemptions, mm -hmm. like dermatologists and ophthalmologists and neurosurgeons. And they also noted that there were some physicians that were giving temporary exemptions after the individual pays $300. Mm. So it began to become a vaccine exemption mill. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And once that got brought to the attention of the California Medical Board, the California Medical Board started to take some action against some of these physicians. Mm-hmm. And subsequent to that, these kinds of medical exemptions started to come down again. But it, it really it really illustrates how a system system can be abused. And it's not surprising that it happened in California, where in one of my favorite statistics is that in West Hollywood, the uh, rate of vaccination of children is less than it is in South Sudan. So this is, a, this is an area that is quite... Is that because South Sudan is particularly good at vaccination? Yeah, they are. I'm sure that they are. So, so let me, first of all, let me just correct the number. So it, the medical exemptions increased from 0.2% in 2015 to 2016 to 0.7% 2017 to 2018. So you're, so you're right. They sort of tripled or, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood. But, but, but they're, they're also the required vaccination rate rose from 92% to 95% after this change in policy, which I think is a really important important so consideration. So, so, de- so it definitely worked. And, you know, for measles, where you need about 95% vaccination rate to, get, to achieve any kind of herd immunity, it's, it's really important. Absolutely. So I, I want to go back to, so you, you, you pointed out the issues, the potential issues with the VAERS system. And I, it seems to me if we learn anything from the COVID times is VARES is is useless for yeah. for real you know scientific analysis. What it's there for and its stated purpose is to for for hypothesis generation essentially. It's not an early warning. An early warning, early warning right? Signals. So what should we be looking for? Yeah. Now to be fair to these authors though, they are not trying to say VARES tells us anything. They're trying to test a hypothesis about the VARES system. So it seems to me you can use this data to say were there changes in reporting in the VARES system. Can you attribute that to something? That's where I thought they were going to go. That's where I think we, we're, we're going too far because, yeah. uh, you know, there are lots of other other reasons why things could change. The The thing I, I, I just keep going back to is exactly the point that Chris made, which is why do they focus here on the percent of the reports that are from the parents, right? The hypothesis is that parents or I suppose potentially providers, but mainly parents are reporting into VARES more often after the change in policy in order to essentially document a prior adverse event that they could then use for an exemption right. today. Right. That's exactly right. what I thought they were going to go Therefore, for. Therefore, we, we should be focused on what, what the changes in the, in the, pa- the, the parent slash patient column tells us. And that goes from you know, anywhere between 138 and 170 reports between 2011 and 2015, up to a high of 213 in 2016, 2017, that drops back down to 181 in 2017, 2018. So yeah, there, there does appear to be an increase, but it's not, it's not a dramatic increase. And as Chris points out, there were these two increases, two years of increase in the manufacturer reportings in 2014-15 and 2015-2016 that skew the percentage of reports that are from parents. Because those are going to drive them down necessarily. Yeah, so looking at the percentage doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I'm not I'm not as convinced there's a, there's a there's a great change here. There is a change and there's absolutely a change in the percent uh, or in the absolute number of parent slash patient reports. But is it large? Mm, It's moderate. The second thing is why would that in and of itself be evidence that the reason why the numbers go up are because people want to you know put in a, a report so they can use that? I mean, it's, it strikes me as possible, right? But I don't see evidence here that demonstrates that this is right. not individual level 
correlated, you know, we're not looking at any correlation between those who actually requested an exemption and put in a report to VAERS. We're just looking at raw numbers on, on either side. Yeah, one of the things that, that struck me is that that might not have been in the motivation for the individual parents themselves in, in making these um, claims in VAERS, but it could be that it was a, a form of advocacy sure. on the part sure. of groups sure. of parents because I have seen writing and literature and, and, and social media stuff where people attempt to band together to increase the number of reports to mm -hmm. theirs to make a claim that you know there's a lot more damage being done to us out here on the front lines than the medical professionals think there is. Yep. And actually, that there there's some other support for that because a number of the uh, the anti-vax websites include links to report on theirs. Right. So there they're kind go. of funneling, you know. And I think they were highly shaking motivated, the trees. Highly to... motivated once the personal exemption route was cut off to them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So then, so then, I mean, so it seems to me that we are looking at some small, some I won't say small, moderate changes in parental reporting that does coincide with a change in the exemption rules. But there are a lot of things that could explain that. And so, I, what's confusing to me is where that hypothesis came from. You know, and if you if you really did want to test that hypothesis, there presumably there would be more convincing ways to do that, as opposed to just saying there's something interesting we think going on here. Maybe it's interesting, maybe it isn't. You know, what are the possibilities that could explain this? It, it just feels to me like we're going a, a step too far to say that this provide support for a hypothesis yeah. Yeah, as to the reason it's why. It's a little bit too far away. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, that's, yeah. Where, I, that's where I was. It's, I, it's I, consistent with, but is is not proof. Not not strong proof. Yet. Exactly. And I, mm -hmm. It just seems to me it's, it's an interesting finding, but in and of itself doesn't doesn't have an explanation. Yeah, I, I would agree with that summary. So so moving on to our, our second topic picks up exactly where this one leaves off because in our second segment, we are going to talk about a New York Times article that Chris wanted to talk about. Sorry, I couldn't remember who, which one this one came from. That that talks about, I suppose I'm overstating that it flows directly from the, the last segment, but it talks about the reporting on vaccine polls that were done during the pandemic. So now we're talking about COVID vaccines. And you have these polls that are, are done to try to figure out how many people are, are vaccinated so you can get a sense for how much vaccine uptake there is, as opposed to just looking at the reports that states are making in which you have to wait for the, the states to report in. It takes time. You can just try to get a sense for how much, you know, how much vaccine uptake there is by doing these polls. And the article focuses on the two, two biggest polls that were done, both of which were, were pretty off. Yeah. Way off. And and the question seems to me then becomes, you know, this is a symptom of a of a problem that we're seeing not just in vaccines or the health field, but but political polling in general, right? We're 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 entering an era where we try to do polling and we're we're not getting very accurate answers. And we know that because in this case, you actually can go back to eventually you can get the the reports on the number of people who have actually been vaccinated. With political polling, obviously, you have actual votes. Where yeah, people, you have an election. You have an election. It's a, it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good ground truth, I'd <laughs> yeah, say. That's the best right. poll possible. Right. <laughs> Definitive. Whereas other things, like, you know, how, you know, 
how much would would people be you know willing to you know make some some change that would affect their health or some you know what do people think about a a different you know healthcare policy or things like that we we don't have any ground yeah. truth to yeah. compare to so we are relying on these polls to inform decision making now obviously it's a political those are political decisions so how much are they really informed by by polling you know a fair bit but you know they're also informed by political motivations but my point being have we entered the era where polling just doesn't work the way that it did in the old days when you know you had you when do we defeated truman well fair <laughs> enough those things can go wrong where you could you could do random digit dialing say and get a representative sample of the united states Whereas now you can't you can't do random digit dialing in the same way because everybody's got a cell phone. People have cell phones, but I mean, random <laughs> and, digit and, dialing doesn't matter. But 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 people don't answer their cell phones is the <laughs> is the bigger issue in the right, same way. Right. You know, have we have we entered the era where we've lost a very crucial piece of information to inform policy, whether it be you know in in politics or in health? Yeah, Thoughts? yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I totally agree, and I, I think one of the things that was brought up in this article that I thought was interesting was the delusion that large numbers equates with more accuracy, and I think that that's something that we've talked about a lot right. here in this podcast, and and it's really really important. They, they call it the, the flaw of big data. Yep. Yeah, that that a poorly constructed sampling regime is in no way going to... Sample size doesn't help that. Is it, Yeah, it's going to be helped by, by, by very large sample sizes. And, and I think people, you know, people who are, who are relatively ill-informed become very impressed by those large sample, sample sizes. And, and one of the things I wonder, Matt, is that whether there's a situation where large sample sizes can overpower a comparison, whereas if you've got inherent bias in the way the sampling is done, but you've got huge numbers, very, very small differences that are otherwise meaningless are shown to be statistically significant because they have great numbers. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. sort of, it's sort of it's a flaw in the presentation. I, I think we've, we've paraphrased this many times as getting the wrong answer with better, better precision. More, more, more and more confident in the wrong answer. Yeah, I, I mean, polling, polling like with, with you know, effect measures in epidemiology, we, we suffer from two potential problems, systematic error and random error. Random error goes away the larger your sample size is, and so that's why that's people are impressed with large doesn't, polls. Doesn't touch systematic Systematic error. error does not change no matter how big your sample size right. gets. There are probably some exceptions to that, but generally speaking, doesn't go away, and therefore you are getting more and more confidence in the wrong answer. And I, I right. suspect that is th those two two confluences coming together, the era of big data combined with the era of increase in systematic error associated with, say, in polling with people not answering their phones. And you try to, to be fair to, to pollster, you know, those who do polling, they, they try to adjust for this. Right. But their methods have not proved overly effective so far. I mean, if you look at the polling, uh, to be fair, one of the other problems is people don't understand when consuming polls, what the margin of error really means. Yeah, because that's uh, just sample size. It, it's sample size, but it's also like, so if you look at the polling that was done around the, the presidential election, the last presidential election here in the United States, or sorry, the one before, the 2016 one, where I think it was Nate Silver's poll gave Trump a 30, 33% chance of winning, and other polls gave him a little bit less, so closer to like 20%. But 
20% chance of winning does not mean 0% chance of winning, and 33% definitely doesn't. Right. So understanding, I, I said margin of error, what I really mean is understanding probabilities. Race. They see it as a horse race rather than as, as, as a probability, right? They, what do you they, mean? they see like, you know, if, if it's, if like, if, if someone has an 80% chance of winning, they, people will often interpret that as like, this person has 80 votes and that person has 20 votes and right. therefore it's a landslide and they're definitely going to win. That is not what the, the statistic means at all. Right. It means if you, if this race happened 10 times in eight of them, one person would win and two of them, the other person would win. And we came up with one of the ones on the lower side with a 33 if you give somebody a 33% chance of winning it's not all that surprising that they Someone win would win right every right. every third time but we see 30 you know our minds say Hillary Clinton had a 66% chance of winning she's going to win right. that's but, a but, and you're absolutely right Chris it is because people look at the 66 to 33 and think of that as, as a set of votes. the voting margin right which is totally wrong but you know with that said i mean the i, I think we look back on the the 2016-2020 elections and the 538 polls in particular as being exactly Examples of the same Delphi Facebook phenomenon that that we are systematically, as you were talking about earlier, we're systematically. Just to clarify, Delphi and Facebook are the two polls that they referenced in this article. That's what you're referring to, right? That one yep. of the polls is the Delphi Facebook survey, and the other one was the Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey. And the Delphi Facebook gets 250,000 uh, responses per week, so it's got like astonishing statistical power and precision. But what it cannot adjust for is systematic error, because the kind of people who fill out surveys on Facebook are different from the kinds of people who don't fill out surveys on Facebook. And it's the same thing with people who answer their phones mm -hmm. when asked if they're going to, or give the right answer, you know, a, a frank answer when they're being queried. Both of those are examples of systematic error. And what we have, what we learned after 2016 is that many of the Trump voters have different characteristics in terms of their response to surveys. And so they were systematically undercounted in those surveys. And this is probably why they're wrong. And that has nothing to do with precision. It's all about bias. Yep. I, I, you know, in our 702 class, I'm going to call it our 702 class, even though you invented the class, Matt, but we've all taught it. One of the examples I would give about precision and, and, and bias was the example of a hunter looking at a target, right? You've got a scope and you've got a tripod and you see the target and you, you know, pull the trigger. And the, if the, the, you know, if the person firing the gun is competent, the bullets should cluster very close together if the gun is true, right? Now, if you then come along with a little bell pin hammer and go tap, tap on the side of the scope, all the bullets are going to go to the left, but they'll still be clustered in a small range. And so that's precision mm -hmm. is the size of the clustering. Whereas the bias is whether it's actually hitting the center of the target. On average, Now, yep. the, the thing is that in the hunter experiment, we know the ground truth because we can see the target. But in most things, the target is missing. Mm -hmm. So we don't know that the bell hammer's gone tap tap to the left and all the bullets are systematically moving left we don't know that ground truth until, all until we see election is day. clustering and then we go oh this is a very good survey because all the bullets came together in such a small right. scatter but it's not the same you know yeah and so it seems to me where this matters now so you've got you've got a couple of different problems going on which is you've got the potential for people to give you inaccurate information when you ask them have you gotten vaccinated whether it be because your definition of, of vaccinated is vague or they don't understand the question or they just don't want to tell you about their vaccination status and then you have the problem of the sampling are, are we sampling a population that is either representative of the population or at least can be adjusted to represent the population. Right. And if where this comes in for us, I think, is when you're doing prevalence surveys, which I don't I don't know if any of you have ever done. I've never Not tried yet. to do no. these, right? We're normally trying to get a population in which we can compare the incidence of some outcome in two different populations. And it doesn't 
Well, actually, the Zambia work we've done is a prevalence survey. Mm -hmm. The prevalence of RSV or COVID in a representative, not a representative, total population, because we, we, for at least for the babies, we attempted to enroll all all deaths that occurred in the city over a three-year period of infants. So there was that's a prevalent service. And then we just did PCR testing to see which one, which of those had RSV. So it was, it was not a an inferred sample; it was a total sample. Sure. So the challenge is typically with with trying to to get at prevalence is you need a representative sampling or a strategy that can recover the representativeness of the sampling. And you know if you're doing a, a an HIV prevalence survey you don't really have the same problem of of measurement error in the same way, right? The HIV tests are pretty good. They're going to get it right most of the time. I don't have to ask somebody, you know, if you if you had HIV, I can do right. a, a test, test for it. You don't have to, it's not an opinion. But we still have the problem of the sampling is yeah. how do we find a representative sample of people? And, and I think this is, you know, this is something we are going to have to grapple with going forward. Because it should be self-evident in a way that, that you know, People who have been vaccinated, and if you ask them, have you been vaccinated, they're going to say yes, right? Because they they are proud of the fact they've been vaccinated and they want to tell you. Whereas if you ask someone who has not been vaccinated whether they've been vaccinated, their motivations are very different. And so right away, those two groups are not not symmetrical. The people who want to answer the question because they have been vaccinated and people who don't want to answer the question because they haven't been vaccinated. I, I, I suspect it depends on if we're specifically talking about vaccination. It's going to depend on you know, who you are and, and where you live. I think there were some people who are vaccinated who don't want to tell you that they're vaccinated. Absolutely, yeah. Except that these surveys are anonymous. So you would think like, yeah. well, who are they talking? Who are they, you know, Shane, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about one's well, internal sets of biases and, and reporting. Because like, you know, if I was, you know, really opposed to being vaccinated and someone asked me, you know, have you been vaccinated? I might just say, you know, to heck with you. I'm not going to answer your question. No, but I think, there's a, I think there's an analogous situation in, in terms of exit polls. And when exit poll, people, people leave the exit, they're, they're, I mean, when they leave the poll, they're asked who they voted for. And that is an anonymous poll. But I think that there was systematic bias because a lot of the people who voted for Trump didn't want to admit that they voted for Trump. So right. Trump mm-hmm. was, it was, hot, it was quite underestimated the, the number of votes that Trump got. So I think, it, you know, there is an analogous situation and people may have an internal motivation to not be truthful. Yeah, when, I agree. When asked those questions. Yeah, and and there's no way that the poll can adjust for that or detect that or oh, there, there are there are methods. I mean, if we have a sense for how much misreporting there is, we can adjust for that, and we we can we can increase our uncertainty bounds to account for that. I'm not sure that people do the latter, but they do the former. I mean, they certainly do try to account for how much misreporting. But in order to do that well, you need to have a really good understanding of what the misreporting is like, and I suspect that is something that changes over time. I mean. People's willingness to report their their being vaccinated, yeah, I suspect is very different in COVID times than it would have been yeah. pre-COVID times. So I really think it's going to depend on having good information to inform any adjustment that you're going to make for under or over reporting. One of the things I thought was really interesting, which comes in the, the kind of the end of this article, I'll just read the quote, Alex Reinhardt, who is a statistician at Carnegie Mellon, he said, this was the Facebook poll, the Delphi Facebook poll. He said, it was pretty good at detecting changes in infection rates and vaccination rates in areas, but not so good at getting the levels right, meaning yep. that it was sensitive to, to shifts so 
over time. But the absolute value was imprecise. But then he says, parenthetically, although lately the problem has been different. The Delphi Facebook surveys has shown little change in self-reported vaccination rates, even though the actual vaccination rates have demonstrably risen. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, So it is like there's an example of where the the poll is really like now we have a ground truth showing that the poll is is demonstrably not just wrong in terms of of an absolute Absolute. value, but still okay for detecting changes over time, but maybe just wrong, 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 wrong. Yeah. So yeah. what do we do with this? It gets back to your original question of like, what do we do with these big data surveys? Are they worth you know the, the price of a postage stamp? I, I think that the take home message is to be, we, we've got to be more skeptical. And, and, you know, I think it was something, Don, that you said during the previous segment, but that, that I wanted to come back to and I, I forgot about, which is, you know, motivated reasoning is, is you know, is a heck of a thing. We We tend to believe things that comport with what we want them to say. Confirmation bias. Confirmation bias or, you know, yeah, it's probably a better term for it than motivated reasoning. But meaning, you know, we we, we tend to be less skeptical of, of things that, that tell us what we want to hear. That's right. And so we will spend less time thinking about the potential sources of, of, of error that come about in a, in a poll that tells us what we want to hear. And I think we we just have to increase our our skepticism across the board, particularly for the things that we we want to be true. I mean, can we really trust any internet-based poll? I think probably not. I think probably not. Also, especially ones on Twitter. I, I love oh, this. No, Twitter is Twitter is not. I, I love a... this uh, this this section where they're, they're they're we're interviewing this statistician, Dr. Mang at Harvard, and apparently Mang has been you know screaming about the big data problems for years. And he says like the intuition is that if you solicit opinions about Taylor Swift while you're at a Taylor Swift concert, you won't be getting a good read on overall opinion. And I thought that was such a brilliant like yeah. example. Of course, yeah. right? It's completely biased, you know, because the Taylor Swift haters don't go to Taylor Swift concerts. Wow. Right? So, so you're, you're, you're saying the survey I did of my family members <laughs> about my work is not an accurate... But, but well, let me, let me finish up, and then I'm going to pass it on. But he, he, he then, like, put some, some math behind it. I was really surprised by this, which is that in a perfectly random sample, there's no correlation between someone's opinion and their chance of being included in the data. But, of course, there is a correlation. And he said, if there's even a 0.5%, which is a very, 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 very small correlation, right, Matt? You know, on a scale of one to 100, 0.5% is, seems small. Is that what it said? Or is it a, a cor- correlation of 0.5? He says if there's even a 0.5% correlation, okay. which okay. is very small, and he then says, i.e. a small amount of selection bias, the okay. non-random sample of 2.3 million data points will be no better than the random sample of 400 data points. That's that's interesting to me. I'd, I'd be curious to see the full math on that because it seemed to me that it would depend on the prevalence of the he says of the thing. That, but anyway that's a fair. reduction in the effective sample size by 99.98 percent so like based on the math even when there's a small bias to the sampling method when you're doing these big things the effect of that bias is you just can get it is really amplified wrong. and i was like wow that is that is astonishing so there you go okay you don't have to be wrong by much at a sample size like this to be completely wrong so 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 the take-home message is be more skeptical be more especially skeptical. Especially if it if it if it agrees with what you want it to say. Right. All right. But I am buying stocks in Delphi Facebook. Obviously. As we speak. Well, I, I actually don't think that's a dumb move. Just because they're wrong doesn't mean that they won't be profitable. That's true. All right. So let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And I'm gonna go first because mine is short and follows directly from what we were just talking about. I don't know if if 
either of you came across this paper by Chu Jin Lin and, and Mark Thornton called Fooled by Beautiful Data. I did not, but I like the title. Visualization Aesthetics, Biased Trust in Science. Huh. And th- this is from some folks at the Psychological and Brain Sciences group at Dartmouth. And essentially what they did was a number of different experiments, I'll call them, you know, s- small-ish experiments, but experiments in which they tried to understand the relationship between how attractive a visualization of data was and correlated that with how much people trusted the information. Mm. So you look at those New York Times data visualizations that are really beautiful and slick and just mm. so fun to mm. look at. They wanted to know, does does that correlate with people's uh, trust in the actual material? And they and I, I won't go through the details of how they, they went about, they did it sort of both just by asking people, but then also by manipulating the the attractiveness of things and seeing the changes in the the level of trust in the information. And the answer is it absolutely made a difference. The more you know attractive people found a particular visualization, the more trust people had in the information that it was conveying. I believe it. Which is I to say him, if I'm you put <laughs> if you put money into slick graphics for your data People are going to trust you more regardless of whether or not your information is any good. And again, I, we're easy marks is, is what this is saying. It's exactly what it says. And I and I feel I feel like, you know, wow, this is speaking to me. I mean, I look wow. at those New York Times visualizations or is it New York Yeah, it's the New York Times that does those really mm-hmm. fancy graphics. And I think, okay, you know, this is this is this is good information here. And I I suspect it has something to do with the fact that I think that if you've got, you know, enough money and energy to put into the presentation of the data, then you also got money to put into the, you know, collecting high quality data in the first place. But that is completely, I think, a a misplaced. There's possibly a little bit of confounding there, but nonetheless, I think it's, I, I buy it. What we don't know, now what we don't know is whether there is any actual correlation between quality of information and attractiveness. In other words, it is theoretically possible that my hypothesis has some truth to it that, you know, if if you've got money or or prepare you're prepared to invest in how you present your data, you also think very carefully about your data. It's theoretically possible, but there's we don't have any evidence of that yet. But certainly the the trustworthiness in the data is influenced by how attractive it is. And I Forgot to say it, and I didn't write down the person, but this was actually sent in on Twitter by one of our our listeners. Uh, oh, cool. And I forgot who it was, so my apologies to the person who sent this in. I did not find this one myself. Okay. Wow, cool. Chris, what do you got? Well, I got two shorties. All right. The first one is, I'm sort of like, you know, taking a soapbox position in defense of Subway sandwich shops. What now? <laughs> so I don't know if you've been following this, particularly in the in the Washington Post. Eat but fresh, there, refresh? Th- there's this whole movement that the tuna fish sandwiches sold at Subway don't have any tuna fish I've, in them. I've heard about this. And this is like some big scandal. Now, I have to say, I love tuna fish. I've eaten tuna fish my entire life. And I know what tuna fish tastes like. And though I don't particularly admire the Subway tuna fish sandwiches, I, I that, that fish, I would put my life on it, is tuna fish. It tastes like tuna fish. It smells like tuna fish. It looks like tuna fish. It has the consistency of tuna fish. And it would have to be a pretty, you know, elaborate like fraud conspiracy even to like replace this thing that looks and tastes with tuna fish with some fake tuna 
substitute. Like, why why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. So I've been thinking about this. Like, what's going on? Because they're using thoughts, PCR. Okay. They're using PCR yep. to test the tuna fish to yep. see if it's tuna fish. And they keep saying there's no detectable DNA from tuna fish in the tuna fish. And I, but they can detect, interestingly, pork and beef. Now... What? We run a lab in Lusaka that uses PCR. And, and so I'm not a molecular biologist. I'm not an expert in PCR, but I've learned a little bit about this. And I also know a lot about tuna fish because I love tuna you fish. Are, you are a tuna fish expert. <laughs> and the difference between, like, say, a ham sandwich and a, and a tuna fish sandwich is that the tuna fish has to be autoclaved to be put into a can which means that you, you, you heat it to an exceptionally high temperature under pressure because it has to be sterile, not just uh, safe. That's where you're going. Right? right? And the autoclave process is bound to, dis, to denature the DNA. And so there's no signal left in the can of tuna fish because you've heated it to such a high temperature that of course it's going to be PCR negative. And what you're detecting in the sample is that PCR is incredibly sensitive and it's picking up the spoon that was used to like, you know, that touched the beef and the pork. They have Subway in, in, in Lusaka. I think we ought to grab some tuna fish from the Subway shop in Lusaka and bring it to your PCR lab. Let's, let's do think, the test. I think the, the, what we should do is we should get a slab of fresh tuna fish test it, then autoclave it, yeah. and then test it. And then that will, like, I think, probably settle the tuna fish conspiracy scandal of, of 2021. Do you know how, to 2022. Do you know how grateful I am that the two of you are finally answering the important <laughs> questions of the day? And this is this is this is an important contribution to science that the two of you are really going to get involved I was, in. I mean, so like, again, I don't want to. I, I have no this particular allegiance. With, I'm not on. The, I'm not a shill for 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 Subway. For big tuna. I don't particularly enjoy their sandwiches, but it makes me so cross that this 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 claim has managed to continue to perpetuate and there are lawsuits going on around this now and i actually kind of feel like the subway people have been treated a little bit unfairly on this okay. one okay all right but, but i have one other thing, quite a position. One other thing which is quite a short, position. which is sort of short. tolkien are you guys tolkien fans sort of uh, sort of yeah, kind of I, I, I read the lord of the rings like eight times and loved the hobbit and read it to my kids and they didn't particularly like it but you know what can you do so i have two questions for you three questions what does jrr tolkien the jrr stand for does anybody know no it stands for John Ronald Rule Tolkien. Okay. Question number two. Where did he work? Do you remember? A subway? Uh, no. Oh. But he probably would have made more money than when he actually did work, oh. which was... A patent office? He worked at Oxford University. He was a professor at Oxford. Ah, okay. okay. All right. And so the, then the third thing is that he wrote these books in the 1930s and 1940s. The Hobbit was written like in 1930-ish and was in response to World War I and the atrocities. And so it was like this bucolic, like, you know, but also the little people, you know, fighting against the, the big evil, which was Nazism. So there's sort of metaphors there. Anyway... When he wrote these books, there wasn't really much of a, a a movement of what we would call, you know, fantasy fiction yet in the world. And so he was kind of a progenitor. Sure. And there are very few people, I think, who quite recognized how how brilliant these books were as, as works of, of literature. And so do you know, he was a professor at Oxford. Do you know where his original manuscripts are currently located? Oxford. That's what you would think. Some of them are. Some of them are. Subway? Subway? Uh, you are so close. A subway station? A tuna fish they factory? They are in the United States, in the Midwest, at Marquette University. What? Wait, in wait, Milwaukee, I Two I questions. One, why? Number two, how is <laughs> well, that close I'm, to why a subway? Is interesting? <laughs> it, well, it just seems so odd that of all the places to put the, the original, like, 
you know, handwritten because he didn't use a typewriter. He, he did the entire thing by hand in calligraphy, no less, <laughs> along with all his original drawings. And so these original manuscripts are like, they're, they're kind of like, you know, you know, scrolls in the middle of nowhere. Wait, illuminated gonna, texts from the middle middle. Are you going to tell us why they ended up there? Yeah. So there was a uh, there was a collector there, William B. Reddy, who was the director of libraries at Marquette, who somehow like realized that this stuff is really great and bought them oh, at, like, for nothing, huh. and they are now archived. In, at the University of Marquette. And there's a whole Tolkien collection there. It's the biggest Tolkien collection in the world in Milwaukee, of all places. Milwaukee. I know, where, I, I know where Chris's next road trip is going to be. Milwaukee. <laughs> Back to the motherland. Milwaukee. All right. Anyway, I, thought that was, I thought that was so surprising. You can so. check in with Laverne and Shirley while you're there. That's right. They were in Milwaukee, right? Uh, what was that line? Uh, something, something industries. Hoff and Pfeffer Incorporated. Hoff and Pfeffer Incorporated. Yeah. Right. It's like a cheap beer. Schlemiel Schlemazel. Right. Hoff and Pfeffer Incorporated, there which are go. two Yiddish words, by the way. Why That's were right. which mean completely different things? Why? Why were they? Why? Why is the opening to Laverne and Shirley two Yiddish I, words? Because I guess they were Jewish. They Those were not. not really highlighted in this show. You know what the difference between Schlemiel and Schlemazel is? I, what? What I is did at one point. One is the, there are two different words for idiot, right? But one is the right. so, different so, kinds of idiots. So the, the Schlemazel is the person who drops their chicken salad in your lap, and the Schlemiel is the one who, is the one who has gets the, chicken the chicken salad, salad dropped in their, in their lap. lap. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the victim and the perpetrator. Yeah. But Laverne and, Shirley awesome. were, Laverne and Shirley were not Jewish, were they? I don't know. Well, maybe they were. I don't and think it's they just, were. Was like a, Laverne like a DeFazio was a... Yeah. <laughs> that sounds Italian. That's That's and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Anyway. I don't know. It's, it's a mystery. Don, what do you got for us? I have two short ones. <laughs> Excellent. It's a trend. No, I have one really long one here. Oh, okay. that's good too. Excellent. All right. Let me settle in. Um, I just want there to be precedent here. So I have become quite fascinated with machine learning and the production of text material by computers. Oh, yeah? Ooh. This is good stuff. Um, natural language processing. Mm. And so Google has a like the foremost apparatus to, to be able to do this. And it's called GP3, I think I think is, is what it is. And it is able to actually generate text that is uh, remarkably human-like. Mm. And uh, there is an article in Nature in August of 21 by Holly Elise that I thought was absolutely fascinating because apparently what is happening is that this natural language processing is being used by scientists who are not on the straight up and up, who are trying to pad right. their bibliographies. Oh, right, papers. So what they're doing is they're using this natural language processing to inaccurately back translate articles that are written in various in various places back to English and and, and they're publishing them in them special editions of certain journals that actually have good editorial gatekeeping okay so they're Would not the making same authors though or no, there's a, they found 860 publications that include included at least one of these they're calling them tortured phrases. So what this is, is this is the natural language oh processing goodness. inaccurately translating sort of standard scientific phraseology, and those are a giveaway for these, these sort of plagiarized publications that are finding themselves 
in the special, the special journals. Okay, so just so I understand, the, the, they're not asking a computer to make up a paper. They're asking no, the this, computer- in this, in this instance, I'm gonna talk about- To uh, translate. In this instance, it's really a translation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so some of these tortured phrases that they have picked up- That are, that the are dead indicative yep. of, of this faulty translation is, one is colossal information. What do you think that's- <laughs> Big data. <laughs> Big data. The other one is counterfeit consciousness. Confounding? Uh, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. Oh, wow. One is profound neural organization. A deep neural network. Net yes. Deep neural network. <laughs> Leftover vitality. Uh, uh, unexplained vari variation. Remaining energy. Oh, gosh. Haze figuring. What? Haze, Haze figuring? figuring? What's that? No idea. <laughs> Cloud computing. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and then flag to commotion. <laughs> Flagged, com signal to noise. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh wow, Matt, you're brilliant. <laughs> this is and like then how about the, this real is short. Matt, you have to get this one. This one is irregular esteem. Uh, irregular, <laughs> intermittent, intermittent Ir praise. Irregular esteem is random value. Random values. <laughs> That's so good. Oh God! That's so good. So oh, no. they, oh. So and, did they like go English to like Polish yeah, or some of the language in the back to like, English to yeah, do a double filter uh, and see what the, the translation I, I algorithm does? Oh, that's so good. Oh, I could double my uh, total catalog <laughs> through this. This is great news. That yeah, is so. <laughs> that is terrible. You just that have is to so aim interesting. Low. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. I, well. one, one other thing about that. This the, this, this GPT three that has been created by Google is, is perfectly constructed for language processing. And the English language is based on 27 letters. Uh -huh. And they have incidentally used this same approach for determining what the three-dimensional folding pattern of proteins is. And they apparently have been recently able to do that with great precision and success, which is gonna revolutionize drug development. Wow. And it's because there are essentially 20 amino acids. Yeah. So putting the amino acids in a particular sequence and then inferring how they're gonna fold is, very is a very similar task to constructing sensible sentence structure from words that are comprised of 27 letters. Wait, what's the 27th letter? 26 Z, letters? isn't it? How many letters in the alphabet? I thought we had 26 oh, letters. Space. Oh, the space. Yeah. Got it, got uh -huh. it. Oh. Uh -huh. It's fascinating. That is fascinating. That is so cool. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta send me that article. That is, that is fantastic. Have either of you guys heard of the European Society of Medicine? I recently got tagged by them uh, to come and present our COVID data uh, at their annual oh, conference oh, in Barcelona. This is one of those, one of those like, yes, I, flaky I have, conferences I well. that probably yep. does. And I think they actually do have a conference, but the European Society of Medicine it's a, it's a predatory appears conference. to be a fraud and the whole yeah, thing yeah. is. Anyway, so I, 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 you know, I went on Beale's list and found, you know, all sorts of quotes with like verbatim sets of dialogues that they had sent to me. And so I wrote back to them referring them the link uh, and showing that, you know, their conference was has been tagged as fraudulent. And the the director of the program, the, the, the grand poobah, M. Osman, MD, uh, writes back to me, well, if you can't come, perhaps you'd like to send one of your graduate students. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I was like, boy, oh they don't, they don't, there's they don't not even up. a hint of shame here. They don't no. give up. Wow. 
All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMadFox or Don at, at DTheo1 or Chris at ID.Giller. You can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound editing and building a studio from scratch for us to record in today. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. Mm-hmm.